listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Hello. Hello. Yes. Hi. You're listening to the <laughs> I thought we were going around again for another. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, hi. Are you listening to the Breakfasters podcast for this week? Uh, many things happened. Geraldine, you taught Daniel and I about a dance that Irish people do to a song called Rock the Boat, mm. which apparently the don't whole rock world... rock the boat, baby, rock the boat, don't tip the boat over. Everybody knows it, yeah. except for you two, we were evidently. pig ignorant. Yeah, yeah, I'm embarrassed about it. I also um, talked a little bit about how disturbing I find the nutbush. Anyway, uh, we also spoke to Tate Brady. He's the producer of a film that's screening at MIFF at the moment. It's called Susie Q, all about the legendary Susie Quattro. Yeah, we had a little chat about wallets. Where are they? Where do you find them? <laughs> Where's mine? Uh, and also we got to chat to uh, Ricky Lee Erickson um, about the reproductive strategies of marine animals. Uh, also, uh, we chatted going to the barber and uh, different business models for that. <laughs> and uh, we spoke to Dr. Darlene Lim, who trains astronauts. What do you do? Is it training astronauts? No, no she I does. I lose but... wallets. <laughs> Three triple R. It's been fun. I was watching um, the second series of Dairy Girls last night. Have you... Oh my god, I was watching that too. Ah. I knew that because I saw that you... Were you watching season one? Well, what happened was it came up and I went, I've never heard of this Dairy Girls thing. And I started watching it and I went, oh, this is a second season. There was a season before this, so then I've just gone... Are you two sharing the same account? Yes, we are. Don't give it away. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. I always know what's there. Because, yeah, Yeah. I started watching... Well, Geraldine pays for it, so... Yeah, I do. You're welcome. I don't know how I've organised this situation. I was, I was just very nice to you. You are. I'm a very You're very kind. Giving person. You are. Generous. My password is... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was watching... It's such a great show, but we were watching... Um, gosh, we just... We haven't... We just happened to rip through the whole series last night. Kath the whole series too. Yep, Jeez, what the hell are you doing with your life? Well, just relaxing. It's awesome. <laughs> watching. I feel like you go always go from never having a second to spare. Yeah, to, to then going like and watch an entire season. I think because we started quite early, like at six o'clock in the evening. What time were you watching till? Like nine thirty or something like that. Oh. They're, they're twenty. Like there's six twenty minute episodes. Oh, okay, so yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Do the math on that. What's <laughs> um, well, No, I don't know. Uh, Anyway, so what, but there was one episode where they were at a wedding and then all of a sudden they started playing um, one of the, the characters about to leave and then Rock the Boat kicks on, comes on. The DJ starts playing Rock and she goes, oh, my God, it's Rock the Boat. And Kath went, ha, 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 you know, Rock the Boat. And I'm like, what? And then there is a whole dance that the Irish do, maybe some other people do it, called Rock the Boat. Apparently mm-hmm. it's very popular at weddings and it's to the song, you know, Rock the Boat, don't rock the boat, baby, rock the... You know the song, everyone oh, knows it. I don't know. I don't. don't. The lyrics Excuse sound pretty confused. Me, I don't, don't know, know either. Firstly, we're encouraged to rock the boat and then don't rock the then boat. Then don't rock the boat. <laughs> you... You do know I'm, the I'm song. I'm looking up Rock the Boat right now because I don't know what you're talking about. The, the song. You know the song, though. So I'd like to know where you got, got the notion. Is that it? No. So I'd like to know, you got the notion, 
Rock the boat, don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat, don't tip the boat over. That traditional Irish folk tune. <laughs> it's absolutely not as well, which is why it's so surprised. I'm very surprised that you guys don't even know yeah, this song. I do, I do, I do, I do. Yeah, me too. I definitely know it. Yeah. You just wanted me to <laughs> sing a bit more. Yeah, keep singing it. Rock the boat, don't rock. Sing along with me. Don't rock the boat, baby. Anyway, thank you. Yeah. They get very popular at weddings, apparently. Yeah. So they all get in rows and they all sit on the floor, like, you know, in a, like they're in a rowboat, and then oh. they all do this choreographed dance together. Is it just an Irish thing, is it? Apparently. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know. Kath knew about it because her parents are Irish, so she's like, oh, I know this. This is, you know, and it's all, they sway hands and then there's some stamping your hands on the ground wow. and clapping and up and is down. Is this like the way the Australians dance to the day the music died, but actually it's just kind of some things where we... No, no, no. I reckon I, I, it's the Irish version of the nutbush. Uh, but you know, I how... that, isn't the Nutbush universal? No, mate. Really? No, I reckon it's only it's Australians that learnt the Nutbush in 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 primary school, uh-huh. like learning that dance. You go to weddings overseas, and it just would never even occur. To, for me to see the nutbush in practice. Mm. Like, there's lots of all this other stuff really? going on. There's yeah, no yeah. Nut, I've always thought the nutbush was universal. So did a lot of people, but apparently, yeah, and I'm sure the Irish think that this rock the boat was <laughs> universal, but absolutely not. I like that that's what you and Kath were doing, probably two hours into your three-hour marathon, learning did, the moves. Dancing. Did you learn the moves? Did it's she, very easy to learn. She dance. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, because he just – Kath did show me some um, some videos of people and, and it was on the show. It's very – it just it seems very simple. There's only a few moves in it. Mm. There's like – there's rowing, so you've got to row back and forth. That's when you're rocking the boat. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you, and then you're swaying from either side oh. and a bit of that, bit of this, bit of that. And it's, you know, I reckon it, it is, you know, the Australian version of the, the – the Irish version of the nutbush. Like it's something that we everyone would have learnt at mm. school. And Did we learn the nutbush at school? Yeah, didn't you? Did we? I can't I remember. think it was you either pick well, it up by osmosis it? or it's actually. Yeah, I don't even know that I do know it. Do I don't you? think I know nutbush. <laughs> I think I, I think I, I think that maybe when it comes on, I get away. What, how do you? From what the do you mean? You just linger up the back and yeah, I just can't remember the last time I did it. I'm sure I would have done it as a child. You're right. You would have I probably did it. At yeah, probably just been a very long time. Like you learnt the 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 bus stop as well. I did not learn the bus stop. You didn't learn the bus stop. No. Did you learn the bus stop? Probably. Can you what dances sing? did you learn? What did you? What kind of? I didn't really learn it. The dosi do. The dosi do. The dosi do. The heel toe poker. Is that what that is? Heel, toe. Did you learn that one? Heel, toe, heel, toe. One, two, three, four. Heel, toe, heel, toe. No, why was there so dancing at your school? <laughs> I didn't learn much else. <laughs> <laughs> right hand, left hand, together, knees. And then you do see do Oh, yeah, maybe. Yes, yeah, that's right. You start, you've just forgotten all the good parts of school, like learning how to do certain dances. I know, I'm kind of jealous because I... I, I I think that I'm of not all the things I could have retained from my learning days at school, I've kept the nut bush, the bus stop, and the heel toe toe heel toe poker. Mm. I think oh. that there would have been a period there where nut bush aficionados would have been felt a bit threatened by the macarena. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Mm. do you think so? But the macarena really went, didn't it? Like, when's the last time you saw the macarena at a wedding? 
I'm oh. going to bring it back. I've got a friend getting married in September. Yeah, Courtney, I think it's coming. And I'm going to request the Macarena and see yeah. how it goes down. This is going to be a sociological experiment. <laughs> yeah, but then there's at a, her expense. There's a whole generation of people that did the grew up on the Macarena that are now annoyed at people not knowing the Macarena but knowing the um, Gangnam Style. Oh, Gangnam Style's nah. Gangnam Style's gone, isn't it? Yeah, but that's you know, but the Macarena's gone. <laughs> yeah, true. This is true. Actually, I was at a wedding like, what's three next? years ago. And Gangnam Style came on and the kids went nuts. Yeah. They'll, and they'll continue to do so for a couple more years, I can't I believe Gangnam Style's the new nutbush. Yeah. yeah, it definitely. Is there, has, any, has anyone incorporated flossing into a broader array of uh, dancing moves? No, I can't. I don't know how to... You don't know how to floss? Do you know how to floss? Uh, no, I, I don't. I think it'd be pretty easy to pick up. But, it, but no, yeah, I'm cocky. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but I, yeah, I, I just feel like the the floss is one move, and it needs a it needs a broader church to find a home. Yeah, mm. so a couple of steps in there. I still can't get over. It. I'm looking up the Nutbush, right? Mm. So it emerged obviously as part of the dance team to turn a song the Nutbush, but it just doesn't give you any reason why it particularly took off in Australia. It just says it particularly took off in Australia during the 1980s. It is usually performed in schools, social gatherings, and community events. Yeah, because we all learnt maybe. Except for you, you didn't learn it. Well, yeah, well, maybe we did. I just can't remember. But isn't that crazy? You would have, you would have known, like you, because we did it at all the time and at every school disco. It, you know, yeah, no, Nutbush you... would play. And you go, yeah, we can all join in. Nutbush, and that's what they do with Rock the Boat in Ireland. Mm. Except they have to sit on the floor. Do they? You have to sit on the floor for Rock the Boat. Yeah. Because, like, you're in a boat and you sit on the floor and you put your legs around the person in front oh, of you. Oh, this is, that is oh, not okay. Yeah, but it's it's what they do. Don't, don't diss someone else's culture, mate. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. I don't um, really have a wallet at the moment. Um, and mm. story of my life, still managed to lose it, which, which does not make sense. <laughs> Please explain. Uh, so, you know, um, you know, how my wallet got stolen from the, at the Dreamtime match earlier in the year. Oh, yeah. And I haven't got gotten around to replacing it properly yet. Didn't someone return it to you, though? No, I got all my cards back. Oh, okay. Mm, got all my cards back uh, and had my important cards replaced bank cards and whatnot um anyway i'm just using at the moment i'm just using my headphones pouch and i've got my cards and stuff in that and i've only started using that like last week and wait before i would just use the top pocket of my jacket um i just keep my card first of all where does one go to buy a wallet i know I don't think they're freely available as what people. Do you know where I'd tell you to go? Where I'd say Victoria Market. That is the first place that came to my head was Vic Markets. I feel like that's where I went when I was fifteen to get a wallet. That's the only reason. Yeah, but you're right. I don't know where to go. Like I've been in shopping centres ago. Just while I'm here, I'm going to get a no. Don't don't know. And then, but then when you do go to buy one, it's like. I don't like that one. I don't like that one. What makes a good wallet? What do What do you need in a wallet? We're in a cashless society now. Do I really need a wallet? I do. Maybe <laughs> I need to go back to the eighties when they had those um, 
those credit card pouches, you know, mm. those the really rich businessmen would have those things and all the credit cards would flip oh, down. Oh, yes, yeah. that, that and a money clip. Yeah, maybe I just need that. Are you a money clip guy? Oh, no, no. I mean, I would be back, you know, I would have liked to have been, but the, the era, I feel like I missed the boat there. I mean, I, I, I can't be trusted to carry my wallet, so I can I lose it reliably. So there was one time I, I was... I won't say where I was because it'll just be noting, but it was, near, it, was, <laughs> it was near the Eiffel Tower. And, no, I really and, want to know where you were. <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and I was just sitting down. I was on holiday and I could feel... I don't know what I could sense, but it was this shadowy, weird presence around me. And I was like, it's very unusual. Uh, and I, I would look left and look right and there was, there was nothing <gasps> there. And I'm like, what is going on? Anyway... So that that went on for a little while, and I just felt like I was being observed. Oh, or, so weirded out by this. Yeah. yeah. So so then this this guy comes up to me who's been who was selling trinkets from underneath the Eiffel Tower, and he says, "Excuse me, do you carry a wallet?" And I said, uh, "No," <laughs> and he had been trying to pickpocket me. Oh my, oh my god! And was completely what? bewildered as to why he couldn't come up with anything, and so he thought that he'd lost his skills and just had to know. Oh, what? <laughs> oh my god! That is insane. So, um, so every time you turn around, he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. But he was, was. He was like a proper. There was. A, yeah. Oh. Yeah, oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was the real deal. And um, I was I was so impressed. I was. You gave him your wallet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did want a trinket from him, uh, and an Eiffel Tower, uh, Eiffel Tower keychain. But but yeah, it's it's it's. So had he been trying? Had he been getting to the point where he'd probably been trying to have his hands in your pocket? Do you think? And you just Definitely. hadn't sensed it. That's I guess. This I don't understand how big pockets do this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a mag- I mean, it's magic. Oh, and then what did you say to him when you said no? Or did he say? Did he say, I've been trying to pickpocket you? Like, how did he... Well, it took a while for it to, to sink in what had happened. Like, oh. I didn't process everything. I just thought maybe he was a concerned citizen. <laughs> uh, but I, that's because I do have, you know, if, if I'm with somebody uh, and they've got a bag or whatever. Um... Oh, you put your wallet in their bag. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like that as well. But I've got... Um, I <sighs> lost... I, yeah. So I'm just let's, stuck, let's, stuck with this in. wizard pickpocket yeah. up. <laughs> Like it's almost like it's a ghost. Though. I feel like you've like, written an entire you... film out of this well, guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's also like the the arrogance to to have such faith yeah. in your own theft, thieving abilities, to and... to to just uh, no, it can't possibly be me. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be this <sighs> dumbass Australian who can't be trusted to carry around <laughs> cash. I wonder if he expected you to to pull one out of your top pocket and go, "You're here, sir," <laughs> and he was just gonna yoink it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's it. Oh, mm. anyway, <laughs> just thinking. Oh, that what a what a hot tip to um to wait, like not carry a wallet at all. That'll get the pickpocketers. <laughs> I was going to say, does it make you reconsider even need, needing a wallet? Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because I'm I I wanted to Maya ages ago and to have a look at. Well, I was like, oh, maybe I could get a wallet there, but they're all in a glass cabinet. 
And yeah. this Maya are is they? so understaffed. There's no chance of anyone coming over to open up that glass cabinet. <laughs> I'm like, what, what hope have yeah. I got? What hope have you got of selling any of this? Any of this? Anyone? Oh my God, it's so true though. Uh, every time I go to a makeup counter, I have to get someone from five makeup counters over. Yeah. Imagine stealing. I was like, sorry, Revlon lady. St- oh. Stealing your own wallet. Like oh. you're in mom. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like, you know, when you buy one, I want to I want to look inside. I want to see what features yeah. it has. Apparently they're working on, um, you know how they've got that that scanner thing, which I don't, to stop people from scanning your credit cards, they've got that blocker in wallets and stuff now. Did not know no, people could scan your credit cards. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I regret telling you. Yeah. <laughs> like, for me, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, is that really happening? But... People are pickpocketing, mm. aren't they? Um, but uh, anyway, so that's a feature that some will... I think that's fairly standard, all these new do you, wallets What now. do you want on a, in the coin situation? Do you Don't want... need coins. <laughs> Don't need what them. do you do with the coins? This kills me. What do you do with the coins? I put them, I put them in my bottom of my bag, put oh. them in my pocket... Oh take them home. Like, usually I ask for $1 coin so I can take them home and use it for the washing machine. What, is, what about when you're in the milk bar and, some, and someone says, do you have 10 cents? Please. Tips. 10 cents extra, you know, to round it up to help them out with their change. Oh, no, keep the 90 cents. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, depends. Depends. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. You really hate coins. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that, that, no, many, we don't have them anymore. When are you getting coins? Oh, any... I have coins. I still have a really – I have a mum wallet, the, a big yeah, – so I don't if... want to call it that because I feel like that's not what we call things anymore. But okay. it just reminds me of when a I was purse. a kid. You've got a purse. I've got a purse, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I keep I keep the coins uh, in the in the car, so I you know there's maybe for the parking meter, which I've got the app now, doesn't matter. But I'll give it to the wind, windscreen um, people. Oh, okay. Give it to them, and then I have coins at home for the washing machine and just buying milk and stuff. Mm. Well, Don't have to carry it around with you everywhere. And just give it out to people. Well, down the line, when you're getting tracked, your every moment and purchase mm. is being tracked by Big Brother. Yeah. You'll, you'll rue this moment when you <laughs> poo-poo coins. Yeah, well. <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, I, fa- I lost my wallet yesterday. This is why I started this conversation. I lost my wallet. But my wallet is my headphones <laughs> with my headphones pouch. So you lost your headphones and your wallet. So I mean, like yes. at a bus stop. Yes, my wallet is my headphones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, lost both of them yesterday and woke up this morning and couldn't find it anywhere. This is was... why you need to separate them. Because you're a loser, not an actual loser. No, no because you're a person that loses things. But, you can't combine but, but, it and double no, the truly, chance of you losing that one really important thing. You need to have two separate things. No, but combining it means that it's half the chance of me losing it. I think it, it doubles it. No, I, think I it doubles it because I'm thinking about it. It increases the power of it. I'm thinking about it. I disagree. It's very powerful. I've still got it. That's a point. I've Get found a wallet. It. Oh, yeah. And what were you looking for this morning? <laughs> yeah, I found it though. <laughs> Three triple. Susie Quattro sold over 55 million records worldwide and after more than five decades in the music industry, the rock star's looking back on her pioneering career in a new documentary called Susie Q, making its world premiere at MIF. And here to tell us about it, we're joined by one of the film's producers, Tate Brady. Tate, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Uh, as one of the producers, what did you find most fascinating about the story of Susie? 
probably once we spend a lot of time with her over four and a bit years and um and uh get it really getting to know her and to find this is a woman who's 69 and still playing get this recorded a new record you know it came out in march it's like a hard rock record mm. I mean, what 69 year old grandmother does a hard yeah. rock record you know <laughs> still tours I, I, for me personally, I think it's that performer gene. She's definitely got it. It ran right through the family and she has to play. Mm. It's, it's that simple. Mm. You know, the idea, and you see it in Keith Richards and all that, you know, you've got you to perform. And, and Australia has a pretty interesting relationship with Susie. We've, we've embraced her perhaps more than uh, other places. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, the US... Do, she, she's not as big in the US as perhaps an Australian fan might. Think. No, that that became one of the sub themes um, of the of the film. We didn't entirely understand that to start with, but Americans, yeah, they're a bit slow. So. <laughs> Even though, of course, she's from Detroit, so she she moved to London, and we may think of her as as English, and all her success was Europe, Australia, in in the UK. But she's from Detroit. She grew up in Detroit. So Americans, we found when pitching the film, I was having to clarify, no, 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 you're getting confused with Joan Jett. Or no, they thought she was an actor who was in Happy Days playing a musician. I said, no, no, she's a rock star who got the mm. gig in Happy Days, you know, because of that. It, it's funny how, you know, over, over 40 years that all gets morphed. And there's a, there's a nice piece in the, in the film where Joan tells that her version of the story. She says, you know, you know, yeah, everyone kept telling me how great I was in Happy Days and I had to go, whoa, it's not me, that's Lucy Quack. <laughs> and uh, Henry Winkler's in the film as well, uh, the Fonz. How, what, what's it like putting, you say, four and a half years? Talk us through that process from go to woe. Oh, boy. As, as so often the case with filmmaking, half of that's about raising the money. Um, but what it gave us the, the latitude to do was to really spend a lot of time with Susie. We did a number of trips backwards and forwards. And I say I say we, I'm talking about um, the director, Liam Firmisher, and, and I. And um, that meant that we... I was just thinking on the way in, we probably interviewed Susie about eight times. And it, it takes that time to build trust mm. and, and understanding and, and even to the point where I remember there was I was with uh, Susie with, with Liam and Susie's house and uh, we'd been there for a couple of days and she's got a fantastic personal archive. I got to play the bass guitars and, no. the, and the original leather jumpsuits Amazing. are hanging there on the rack you know and I said to him you know why don't we leave the cameraman behind tomorrow and I won't come in you you just come in because Liam shot half of the film on, on his own just because of necessity, you know, he, he, he did everything. And sure enough, that was the day where we really got the good stuff. Right. Like, yeah. And the good stuff in this case being all that really personal, intimate stuff about the, about family um, because they're a very talented family and it was the unexpected, to kind of really answer your question, the unexpected element was what happens in a very talented, ambitious family when someone has great success and it sort of thwarts, you know, or over, overshadows the others. Mm. That was that still resonates. We're talking about people in their late sixties and seventies now. I think a lot of people might not know her her background and their family background. Could you just um, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it's the classic Malcolm Gladwell. You know, ten thousand hours. She's been playing professionally since nineteen sixty six. She's been on the road for fifty three years. Wow. Um, 
and was in a, a, one of the first all-female bands with her sisters in 1960, started in 1964 when she was 14, professionally playing since she was 16. And they put out records. They were um, like a garage rock band, really yeah, yeah. Detroit-sounding. Yeah, yeah, and they were, they were from Detroit, and as a number of people in the film, like Alice Cooper and Tina Weymouth and that point out, you know, it's really significant that they're from Detroit because there were a lot of women picked up picked up guitars but it's the, as Patty Quattro says who Patty her sister was a fantastic electric guitarist lead guitarist when there were no lead guitarists mm. or you know women playing lead guitar uh, she says yeah but we were like a we were a rock band we weren't we weren't like a tinky tinky little you know light light um basically like a folk band with electric guitars which is what a lot of the other female bands were and they played professionally you know night in night out Susie left school really really early so she'd put in the hours by 1973 when she broke through she'd be playing for seven years well, you know, yeah you know. that's crazy isn't it does she there's certainly um things that happened in her career that made some major decisions like obviously leaving her family and moving to London and choosing not to continue on happy days and things like that they're quite big decisions um did she have any regrets because I I'd noticed that she probably it sounds like she doesn't but does she that's not her makeup mm. yeah yeah Susie's all about positivity and and it's the, one of those things that drives her, you know, and, and what we can do next. So you know, we didn't want to make a film that was just a history, you know, a, a, a retrospective. And she didn't want that film because she wanted people to know that she's still vital and alive. And I don't think she looks back. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she was also, well, she is also happy to go in directions that just satisfy her creatively that might yeah. be unexpected. Can you, can you talk to that impulse of hers and how that might have affected her advisors around her? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting... I mean, we, that's certainly a subtext of the, of the film, I think, because it comes, for me it comes back to that thing about the, the born entertainer. You know, her dad literally worked in the GM plant by day and, and was a band leader at night in Detroit. They were all really musical. Her brother had success as an extraordinary pianist. You know, he had a deal with CBS. He put out four records. Yeah. It's, like, amazing. But the she she didn't want to be limited by just being a you know bass playing you know uh, rock, rock singer um she did want to act she eventually wrote you know she wrote novel a novel a memoir a book of poetry you know you can't you can't you can't she says in the film you don't don't clip my wings you know mm. and maybe in the you know with with strict like modern management they would stop you from doing that they say no You've got to stick to your brand. Yeah. I don't think they were talking about brand in 1981. You know? mm. yeah. <laughs> and there, there's, there's some people in the film, you were saying earlier that there was um, Henry Winkler, um, Deb Harry, Joan Jett. How did you go, come to f- get these people in the film? And was there kind of a common thread uh, between them all in what they admired in her? Yeah, well, and that was how we got them. They all really ad- ad- admired her. And I think um, the underlying thing there was, this, as some people say it a little more, uh, like Sheree Curry says this a little more overtly, uh, a sense that as they're nearly all Americans, they understood that Susie didn't have the recognition in North America that she deserves. And, I, you know, there's a reference there, like Joan Jett got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is kind of ludicrous, you know, when Susie Quattro is the first woman to lead a rock band play, not just be the front person, not just yeah. be the singer. And as any musician will tell you, there's a big difference between, you know, being just the front person singer and actually 
writing the songs, singing the songs, playing an instrument. And there was a little bit of a, there's a sort of a, you know, uh, something that, a wrong to be rewritten. Right, yeah. I think that, that motivated a lot of that. And they all really, they all really, really love it, yeah. Mm. And you've been artistic director of MIF. Yeah. But what's it like to have the world premiere? <laughs> it's weird. You know, I've, I've made a few films in the last... Oh, no, eight years or something, but none of them have ever been in in the frame for Miff in the right time or whatever. So this is kind of this is kind of going to be weird for me, but it really it's really exciting. But we literally just finished the film, and um, no one else has seen. In fact, you guys are the only people who've seen the finished wow. film. Yes, so cool. <laughs> you and Susie. Um, and Was Cherie, Susie happy with it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had we batted backwards and forwards a little bit because it's always. You know, she sees a different film to the film that that, that mm. you see, and a different film that I see. Totally, it's all, you know, it's very it's very personal, as as you know, and um, yeah, she is really happy with it. Uh, 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 but there were times that I thought. Yeah, you're definitely seeing it. the things that she focused on were very different to the things that we did yeah. and, and different to the things that we thought she might object to. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Do you have any just quick insight on, yeah. on what, what she might have objected to? or <laughs> just, just to give us a, an insight into the, the creative process? Of... Yeah. Well, one of the few things was that thing about um, not wanting it to just focus on the past. Mm, yeah. yeah, we we always wanted to show the whole spectrum of her personality mm. and her career. And having seen her in the last couple of years playing live, it's 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 pretty impressive. You mm. know, like one of my favourite things, and it's hard to capture in the film, but there's a little suggestion of it. Um, the a lot of shall we say uh, <clears throat> mature age performers might appear to be just going out and you know just putting it. Putting in the in the routine, you know, yeah, putting yeah. in the hours. Susie approaches, and I've seen it so many times now. She approaches every show like it's Woodstock. Every show like it's the greatest show ever. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're in Ballarat or in Wales, where we went on a terrible rainy day, and it was like a cra- crappy kind of festival. No, every show is you know the most important gig ever. Yeah. And I was really impressed with that. Yeah, it comes yeah. across. And she's yeah. writing music with her son, which is very sweet as well. And, and that new record is really good. Mm. <laughs> so, the documentary Susie Q is making its world premiere this month at MIF. You can go to MIF.com.au for details. And we've been speaking to one of the film's producers, Tate Brady. Tate, congratulations and thanks for coming in. Thanks so much. Three Triple R Full credit to Daniel right here. Oh, for, oh, yeah. What's this? For the his calm manner in which he has arrived at work today, and his calm manner in which he's maintained himself. <laughs> Why? After what has happened, possibly one of the worst things that could happen to everybody. What? A tram going past you <laughs> without no. stopping. Yeah. Did that happen this morning? Yeah, We well, didn't yeah. even mention it when I came in. I know, we'll save it for you. Oh. <laughs> well, that's, he'd barely mentioned it to me. Like, he didn't, actually, he didn't mention it to me. It was only Pete came and he's like, oh, how you how you finding breakfast radio? And he goes, oh, the trap. I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. Keeping all these things yeah. inside. Well, I, you know, and I ran for it too. And so oh, that was just really oh, sad. Oh, How, there is nothing worse than the running and missing of a yeah. public transport, is there? Oh, I felt invisible. And, uh, and, and so, I, I, just, so I, got a, I got a cab and uh, the cab arrived at the station at about the exact same time that the tram did too. So I was oh. like, do I talk to the tram driver? 
oh, like have take a, have a word. Yeah, oh. and I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I didn't want to scare the tram driver. Like, what, what would you have said? Well, I I think because I'm pretty sure I was visible in the rear view once I was like waving as it ding dinged and <laughs> sped away, mm. and uh, and I I was like, I hope he looks at my dejected, sad face and it sticks. Maybe he gets pleasure from that face. Possibly. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, I'm happy to provide that community service. Uh, <laughs> so were you like, were you, or were you waiting at the tram stop or were you getting uh, towards the tram stop and oh, then running? I was like, I was like, I was at the tram stop. Yeah. Oh. I was at the tram That's stop. That's the worst the worst time for the tram to go past you because then it's just a, a case of, do I exist? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. And there are other days, you know, like... I think maybe one day uh, I've worn tracksuit pants. One. Yes, and, we know about that. Was on Monday. <laughs> that was on Monday. <laughs> Monday, the fifth of August. Then you wore tracksuit pants. <laughs> and if it's better, if it's better away, then I'd be like, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Not fair enough, but it'd be like, all right. Because that that day also, I went to a convenience store very early, and they didn't open the doors for me. Oh my! <laughs> really? Yeah. Was you wearing tracksuit pants? I'm pretty sure. Like I. I I mean, I think they're just a little bit more, you know, cautious. cautious. They were three yeah. stripes as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm you know, the brunt, facing the brunt of tracksuit pant bigotry here. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Uh, but, yeah, today I had a haircut. I, I thought I looked pretty good. I walked in, I thought, I think Daniel's had a haircut, but I didn't want to, I couldn't get a good look at you. Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to freak you out. No, that's fine. Okay. And then I went, in, I went into the, oh, it, it's okay, but I, I went into the uh, barber yesterday and, uh, at the end of it, and it, they were so attentive, and I thought, oh my god! Like they were young men with a new business was open a year, and they they even had a wheelie thing, like they were painting my face, what? like a you know the like a house paint uh, thing. They were like a lint roller, yeah, lint roller, but on my they face. Got a lint roller on your face. They lint rolled, really? They lint rolled my neck and what face. What was on your face and neck? Well, and yeah, rolled I off. guess cut, cut oh, yeah, like yeah, little... at the end. Oh. Is that normal to get well, lint first time it's... And... <laughs> It's never happened to me before. Maybe they were just looking for that one percent that people would yeah. remember about. Yeah, them. exactly. And then, and then he uh, are he they put, called he... lint roller barbers? <laughs> <laughs> he put to see. You know how at the end it was like, "What do you think?" and all that. He he wanted to know my opinion throughout the entire haircut. So he would oh god he would go retrieve my glasses from a bench oh. further away and slide <laughs> them on me. Oh, that's so intimate. <laughs> yeah, and he would he was oh. he would put his head next to mine. He was really fastidious, <clears throat> and you I don't know. like the idea of someone putting glasses on me. There's something very yeah, it's a very intimate act. Oh yeah, we're going steady. Don't worry <laughs> <Yeah>. about that. <laughs> uh, and then so after all of that, I was like, look, this was a overall it was a pleasant experience, and I I appreciated his attention to detail, and also he didn't yes. feel obliged to. Talk because I, I do talk a lot in my life, and yeah. so I enjoy sometimes not the talking. Sil- I kind yes. of love silence. Uh, and and the the music was I don't know it was uh, he had a they had a giant projector screen playing video clips. Oh, oh this, what is this place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's new. It's but anyway, and then the lit person rollers, bef- the projectors. <laughs> so at Put the end of it, on for you. I say, uh, what what do I owe? And he says, Oh, don't you know how it works? It's up to you. <gasps> Get the f out. Oh, no. So I'm like... That explains so much about that process. Yeah, Yeah. right. So I was uh, always like, no, he said, how do you want to pay? And I'm like, how 
I don't know why I asked this. I said, what would you prefer? And then he said, oh, it's it, it's up to you and how much you pay is up to you. And uh, oh and, then, and then I was like, what do I say? And it's, I, I don't know if this is a bad figure. I don't know, inc- want to incriminate myself. Do they have a suggested 40, amount? No. I paid 40 bucks. Thank you. That was what I yeah. said. And I, I had a $50 note. And then he said... He, he didn't have change. So oh, so he Daniel. he rushes upstairs. I was like, don't, please don't, just take it. And he's he like, no, I'll charge. be right back. And I'll say, if you if don't bother coming back, I won't be here. And then he goes, why? Are you running late? I'm like, oh, no. Oh, so, God, this is a horrible interaction. <laughs> so he comes down and then he's, his co-worker or family member or brother or something who's also giving haircuts, he's like standing by me. Then he comes down. There is no change. Oh, he my find change God, this is the worst. He says to his brother, do you have ch- change? I can't deal with this at all. <laughs> Daniel, I can't. Out the wallet. Also, stop the, with the, the... Maybe you shouldn't carry cash. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't have $10, but he has 5 Oh, my so God. So I take that and oh, I leave. That's fucked. But, but, like, why? I don't understand. Because... You know, there was a, before me. There was like a, a student that came in, and mm. I don't know how much the student paid. But I don't want anyone taking advantage of this honesty system, like immoral broke people who pay five bucks and do a runner or whatever. Yeah. So no one would do that, would they? I, who the hell knows? Possibly, maybe. That's, that's all someone can afford for a haircut. That's ex- sure. exactly right. But but how many times would that happen but, before they stop the lint treatment? Oh yeah, that's a very good like point. This isn't but worth also, it. how? It said it's, well, do you think they I identified guess... you as a big roller? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Well, if they, well, if they were, you weren't wearing your tracky ducks, so <laughs> they're like, hello. I mean, maybe because that's the thing. Like the haircut, they would they'd probably like it and impressed by the haircut, mm. and I after the haircut look better. I think if you yes. want to provide a haircut service. Um, Without and have people pay for that to be sustainable, get rid of the projector. How how are you paying for that projector? Oh, well, it's, it's, I, think been, I, mean? I think it's been paid for. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is my, yeah, 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 yes. yeah. I know what you mean. I, I just you got to make it more no frills. But there was nothing about it that suggested no frills. That's that's why I'm really confused. Mm. What you said to me sounds like funky, yes, yeah, cool barbershop. Yes, that would be, be you know fairly not expensive, but like you'd be paying a reasonable amount of money. Mm. Yeah, and they, I'm like, do you get happy coffee to pay or anything? Uh, he got, he offered tea. I accepted a glass of water. No beer. No, no beer. I mean, it was early, but oh. but you know it would have been nice to be offered. If it was on offer, but I don't so think it was. Then do you pay for the beer as well? I think you know, ordinary, absolutely. But this is the thing, like the, no, because I, I, I go to barbers and get a beer. Yeah, they, get, oh, they give you a true. free beer. I, yeah, mm. I, uh, I, I had a hairdresser that made me a cocktail. She oh. t- what? She stole a cocktail menu from a fancy cocktail bar and was like, just a, the world's best. She was like Brian Brown. Why? Why would you go back to her? Would she why drink she the cocktails wa- as well? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she... she... Why was she a hairdresser? <laughs> I don't know. She just enjoyed the, the hospitality experience. Where, where is this place you're going? What are these crazy... Well, this is the thing. Well, I'll, the, it was in a house, the the, the cocktail one. Oh. But the, this one is... Oh, you know, oh okay. Isn't it, isn't it hard enough offering, doing running a business without knowing what sort of money yeah. you're going to get. Yeah, it's too unpredictable. They need suggested prices. I think yeah. so. I mean, it's also hairdressing is, you know, fraught with interactions anyway without lumping that on as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Anyway, I survived. Also, I'm not sure about the lint roll. <laughs> <laughs>
Triple R. Feature Creatures, we're joined by Ricky Lee Erickson. Hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, reproductive strategies of marine animals. That's a scientific euphemism, if ever I've heard <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this week I, my beautiful cousin Mia gave birth to a little girl called Charlotte Rose, and I've been reading a lot about human reproduction just out of interest in anticipation to the birth, and it made me wonder, oh, I wonder like if there's any, because I know that there's always weird stuff happening in the ocean, so I I thought I'd mm-hmm. look it up and, yeah, there's some weird stuff in there. So I thought I'd I'd talk to you about that. Okay. I love it. So I'll probably – I'll talk about the biggest example, which isn't as weird, but it's it's more interesting and fascinating of, and we don't really understand – we're still trying to figure out how and why, but it's coral spawning. So once a year cues on cues from the lunar cycle and water temperature, among lots of other different cues, which we're not really sure about yet, um, the – it stimulates the maturation of gametes, which are sperm and egg cells within corals, and then they just spontaneously release all the gametes like at the same time, which is pretty cool because we still don't really know why. Um, so most corals are hermaphrodites, so they have they both have eggs and sperm, and the timing is crucial because the gametes are only viable, so they're only going to be able to be fertilized within a couple of hours so everyone needs to re- release at the same time and often different species will release it just slightly apart from each other because they don't want hybrids between these other coral species oh, which is really wow. cool um so they float up to the top and then they they fertilize each other um and then they become planular and they float for a few days before dropping to the bottom of the ocean um to settle but the reason why they produce so many millions of gametes um, is because most of them don't make it. If you think about the likelihood of of a coral larva just swimming, like floating, and then perfectly finding the exact right substrate and the exact conditions mm-hmm. to settle and it not already being taken, um, in coral communities, space is that's essential like that is what everyone wants it's fighting over space so yeah most of the coral larva die um, and they actually produce they make a really good food resource for other animals as well so it's kind of like a really important event Um, but yeah and then if they do make it to grow they grow about 4.4 inches a year so it's a long process from there how yeah. how responsible is the moon for reproductive reproduction in the oceans? Yeah, they think that it's fairly important. So it's usually after the first full moon of so in at the Great Barrier Reef. It's usually it actually depends on the location of the reef. So outer reefs will be um, a little bit no outer reefs are later. So November December. So usually around a full moon of that, and then in a reef, so closer to the shore um, after the first moon of October, first wow. full moon of October. And how? I mean, do you know the scientific reason? Like, what's the moon doing that's making... I guess it's affecting, like, the gravitational... And it's a lot of... um, To do with the sun as well. So, like, the sun, the amount of energy that's hitting the sun at at a certain time as well. So it's not just simply temperature. It's about the sun's position and radiation and everything like that. So it's it's really complicated. Like, I was looking at some recent papers that were looking at um, solar you know, influence and then the moon's obviously a really 
important one because it always happens after a full moon and and it happens at night so in the moonlight and that's when you get all the images which is really cool um but yeah it's really it's really interesting and it's kind of cool how these massive communities of so many different species they just kind of coordinate it together it's Mm. it's really really cool um and they also do other forms of reproduction so brooding which is when like the sperm fertilizes the eggs within the polyps so the eggs don't leave the polyps um, and then the larvae are released into the water budding so one coral just clones itself and just buds into another um, new coral um, and then there's like coral bailout which is when they just like release a bit of coral and then that floats off and then settles so there's a few different asexual but obviously they prefer sexual reproduction a lot of the time because it does give you more genetic diversity and strength which is really cool. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. How do these things even... I just... <laughs> yeah. How does the world have even you, exist? Have you, have you been there with the, the releasing? No, I'd love to, though. I've been to the reef, but not... Yeah, not like that. And it's really hard because you don't actually know when exactly. it's exactly going to happen, <laughs> which oh. is kind of cool. You just kind of hang around, chill there every yeah. night until you see. Not to be a negator, but... With the conversations around the destruction of the reef and global warming and rising um, temperatures of water, does that affect... Do we know whether that has any effect on the reproduction of corals? Yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, a lot of lot of the... So one of the main things is that when the water becomes more acidic, so the pH is changing because of rising sea levels, um, it means that coral, like the larva, actually lose the ability to to develop so they're releasing all this lava and then they can't actually go anywhere with it um which is kind of sad and then but yeah considering that all of these cues are environmental mm. and they're so specific you've got to assume that that they will have an effect mm-hmm. are there any other reproductive strategies that have piqued your oh, interest so many so <laughs> this is probably my favorite one because it's a worm and i have a soft spot for worms <laughs> um said no one ever <laughs> So some marine flatworms in the genus Pseudobiceros. Um, they're really cool, um, brightly coloured. And each worm is a maphrodite, so they have two penises um, in this oh, encounter. Lucky ducks. Yeah, which is always <laughs> makes it interesting. So <laughs> when a pair of worms meet, they duel with their penises. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Each att- attempting to inject sperm into you the other. Like worms anymore. <laughs> Like, you can always rely on a worm to do something <laughs> like this. That's why I love them. <laughs> so the, it's right. like basically a jewel to inseminate. So each of them wants to be the inseminator and not the inseminatee. Mm-hmm. Right, yes. that's a word. Yeah. Um, so basically it's easier for them to reproduce by just... How funny. Donating sperm. So instead of a fight to their death, it's a fight to the life. It actually is. And actually stab each other with their penises. So the one that loses often has permanent, like, puncture wounds to their body. So it's it's pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yep. (laughs) No, I haven't. I haven't been lucky enough to see it. But, you know, that would be really amazing. Um, Do you have any more? I don't think you can top that, but give it, yep. Yep. So, um... Palola worms. <laughs> um, so before it's time to grow, like the back half of the worm like becomes basically mainly reproductive organs and okay. they lose everything else. And then it just snaps off half of the body oh, and no. it, that just swims off. And then the anterior half just grows a new back half and mm-hmm. the top half just 
grows a new front half. Oh my oh. god! And then they clone. They they clone. No, kind no, of. No. But then those. So the back half will then like reproduce. <gasps> so it, it basically clones itself in order to. So one can stay at the burrow. And one can go up to the surface where it's a lot more risky and reproduce with other worms. It's oh. really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And they even, cool. like, they complete, they changed their whole makeup of their body to do this. Yeah. It's really cool. God. So you can meet two places at once. Yep. Yep. What else? Um, <laughs> Are you not entertained? <laughs> uh, blue banded gobies are uh, fish. Um, so they're really social. They come in large groups. And I'm sure you've heard about fish changing sex. Yes. Um, dependent on social cues. But blue-banded gobies, because they go one further. So basically the dominant male goby has more opportunities to pass on its genes than a female who's limited by the number of eggs. So it's better to be male right. in this scenario. Um, so when the male dies, the biggest female of the group will change sex and become the dominant male. Um, but if a group of males find themselves with no females, they then have the ability to re- back to being female. So that's like the extra one of the extra steps that that oh. so they can just they have this um, plasticity in their sex, which is just incredible. And um, so basically, in the, in a, if a, the smaller, more submiss- submissive uh, males become a female, and then the dominant males will get to continue to be male because that's better in this situation and what, what makes them is there a variable that makes them more yeah dominant? i think it all comes down to an enzyme called aromatase so they can change androgen into the estrogenic hormones that transform gonads into ovaries and vice versa so this enzyme can yeah basically influence the sex of the whole fish um, and the fish gonads which are the testes and ovaries they contain the precursor for both ovarian and testicular tissue um, so a rapid flow of either Hormone will can flip a switch and basically change the tissue makeup, which is really cool. Um, and it can be pretty quick. So the bluehead ras female, uh, female to male, is just eight days. So oh, wow. that's pretty quick. Yeah, and it's just really interesting that um, it's a social situation that that will yeah start like start this process going, which is yeah. All it's right. Really weird. Well, if you've got any more, we'd love to hear about it in the future. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm sure there's many more examples. <laughs> yeah, lo- lots to chew on, particularly if you're a worm. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Ricky Lee Erickson. Oh, no I just got to ask a question oh. to someone texted. Yeah. Do the cloned worms recognise each other? I mean, they're not cloned, but I don't they? think they'd see each other again. It's oh. kind of sad. Yeah, I don't know if they would, but probably not. It's a sequel to Finding not. Nemo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Three. Dr. Darlene Lim is a geobiologist and exobiologist from NASA who prepares astronauts for scientific exploration of the Moon, deep space and Mars. For 25 years, she's conducted field research around the world in both the Arctic and Antarctic, as well as in underwater environments, piloting submersibles as a scientist and explorer. She's in town for National Science Week, but first she's touching down with us in the studio. Dr. Darlene Lim, welcome to Breakfasters. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. What is exobiology and what are you getting up? Right. So I started my career as an earth scientist working in extreme environments on the earth and um, looking at life and the habitability uh, 
potential of life elsewhere in our solar system is fundamentally what exobiology or astrobiology is. And uh, so we can't go everywhere that we want to go in our solar system to explore that thought, but we go to places on Earth that are rather extreme or on the edges of what we think uh, is survivable, I guess, on a, you know, on a, for lack of a better word, mm. and we explore those areas in terms of the geology, the biology, the, you know, all of the interconnectedness when it comes to um, the Earth sciences, and then we can use what we find as a means, almost like a springboard, to kind of extrapolate in terms of what we think might be possible in our solar system. So what's an example of one of the most uninhabitable places you've been, you've explored on Earth? Oh my goodness. You know, it's I, I can't really characterize anywhere as uninhabitable because pretty much every everywhere on Earth is habitable. We get to temperature extremes as an example. Okay. So I just got off a research vessel in June. Um, we were actually out at sea for almost uh, about three and a half weeks um, off the coast of California, and we were exploring hydrothermal um, vents. And these vents were down a few different, a few kilometers underwater, and um, they ranged in temperature from you know 10 degrees Celsius all the way up to about 300 degrees Celsius. Once you get past about 100 degrees. Celsius, Celsius. That's when you we won't find any more microbes living in that type of environment. Mm. <sighs> what, what can traveling underwater, as you do in submersibles, tell us about space? So, yeah, that's a thank you for that question. Um, <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah, I did that. I think probably now it's been um, about eight years ago. So we had a project at a lake um, in Canada called Pavilion Lake, and um, we were exploring this lake in terms of the biology of such a all sorts of neat things happening in that lake. But then um, we realized the lake was about six kilometers long, six kilom- or a kilometer wide, and then it went down uh, just almost 300 feet, I think it was, about 210 feet, if you will. And um, it was difficult to explore this lake adequately from a scientific standpoint with uh, simply you know, dropping a camera in underwater here and there or scuba diving. We couldn't get very deep. We couldn't get very long. So we put in these single-person submersibles, and uh, they are only about two meters by two meters. The, the gentleman who designed it took an old business class seat um, and, and designed huh. the whole structure around it. You drive it with your feet and your hands are free to kind of, you know, manipulate the touch screen from sonar for, for taking images and things like that. And we were able to put the scientists right down underwater so they could interact for long periods of time, so say up to six hours, with the environment to sample what they wanted to sample. So you imagine a person going back to the moon or onwards to Mars, driving around on a pressurized rover, being able to see their environment as, as they come up upon it and be able to sample you know what they want and choose what they want and and really make um, you know judgments about what is the, uh, the the importance of one environment versus the other in terms of meeting exploration goals or science goals that's what we were able to simulate underwater because mm-hmm. the science was driving our mission and then we had these these tools the, these submersibles uh, and you can consider the human as a tool as well you know driving the mission in terms of meeting the science goals and all of that is a wonderful um, point of comparison or, or an analog to future space mm. missions. So that's that's why we had astronauts come and join us for that for that mission, and why we have them come and join it, us. Are you teaching just mechanical things, or is there a psychological component? Is it is it scary? Is it calming? What's it like? It depends there? on the person. So for me, um, I think the first time I got into that particular submersible, it's kind of overwhelming. You know, you yeah. get this, this bubble top, and then you get dropped into the water. And for training, oh. we were just um, off the uh, off the coast of Vancouver, and it, the water was very murky. So it's a little weird, but then it's exhilarating. 
and I, you know, absolutely oh. loved it. And sitting in the in the submersible for six hours, you'd think it was a long time. There's no bathrooms, you know. There's no food, so you bring down your muffin with you and kind of munch on it for six <laughs> hours. You do not. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, no, 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 no. I just let you into a little secret. That's how I oh. I, I stopped being hangry every time. You know. I'm, <laughs> but uh, it it the six hours would just fly by. And so to answer your question, the interesting part was really enabling the the scientist or the astronaut to be an excellent observational scientist. So when you're doing field work of any kind, um, you're entering into, envir- in an, into an environment that you may not have seen um, before up close and personal. You may have seen, you know, Google Earth images or whatever, mm. satellite images, but you haven't seen it in the flesh. It's kind of like meeting somebody after you've talked to them on the phone for, you know, six months and then suddenly you meet them and there's all sorts of things that happen, right? It, it's the only almost the same when you interact with a natural environment like that as a field scientist. And um, so you have to be able to intake what you're seeing and calibrate that against your scientific objectives or your exploration objectives. Um, And you've got to be able to deal with all of the hardware and the software and the people nattering at you. Say, you know, when we simulate space missions on Earth, we actually will have um, a simulated uh, kind of flight controller, if you will, who's telling you what's going on on land or on Earth, if you will. And then, you know, you have to synthesize all that as well as synthesize what you're seeing in front of you and make make decisions. Mm. So that's the training that we put the astronauts. I don't train them when it comes to you know their operational skill set or anything like that. That's NASA Johnson does that and does that you know of course incredibly well over many years or decades. But what we try and do is absorb astronauts as as many as we can um, into this very dynamic environment where you don't nobody knows the answers to the questions at mm. hand. Um, so you know you're all having a lot of fun exploring together. Is there something inherently antisocial about wanting to leave Earth? It's like well you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're all smart. Let's get out of here. I hope not. <laughs> I mean, you're not giving off that vibe. Yes. <laughs> you know what's? It's. I, I love that you just asked me that question. It's actually. I know, like scientists can have this very strange kind of standoffish vibe, but when we do these missions, you have to be a family, and so mm. we do not. Uh, we're not capable of keeping people in our teams who don't integrate well, who are not able to um, work across their their domain, their field of expertise, who are not able to take the trash out, you know, even though they're like the senior scientist who's gotten a bazillion different medals, um, you have to be able to leave all of your, your layers, your obfuscations at the door and come with no ego to this environment and then do your best to support your team. Um, and I find that's when innovation happens, is when you get geologists who are thinking like operational scientists and operational scientists who are worried about the sterility of, of a rock as we pick it up so that some science objective is met. So um, that's the lovely part about these teams and about the people that we absorb into the teams. And we and we find that we kind of march as a herd together. You know, the, we, the people drop off, come and go. We've had students go into all sorts of great careers over time. Um, but fundamentally, the core group stays together because because um, we recognize, you know, there, there's a, a little bit of magic to it when you find the right person. You've also, um, you know, been to other extremes. You've been to the Arctic and to the Antarctic. Can mm-hmm. you talk to us a little bit about what, what you did there? Yeah. Um, so in the Arctic, I actually spent just about oh, all of my master's, so the two years of my master's and then my PhD program, which was four years. Almost every summer, I went up to the Canadian high Arctic and I was sampling lakes and ponds. So ponds are anything that are two meters uh, deep or, or less, so shallower than two meters. And mm-hmm. lakes are two meters um, 
and greater in terms of depth. There you go. Yeah, and so uh, <laughs> that's how we that's how we characterize it, anyways. Because the ponds will freeze right to the bottom. That's typically the 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 depth of the of the ice that will form in the Arctic winters. And then the lakes will have a layer, that two meter layer of ice on top, but the rest of the water will actually stay liquid underneath. Um, and so we were sampling these these lakes and ponds in terms of the water, in terms of the biology, and trying to put that whole story together um, in terms of what was going on in those environments over the, over the last ten thousand years. So I came to to do what I do, the geobiology component, starting out primarily as a climate change scientist and earth scientist. Um, and then I was, because I was working in the Arctic, I happened to meet up with a, a NASA group. I mean, I'm putting it kind of lightly, you know, there are other things that happen. But um, I started working with this group called the NASA um, Hot and Mars Project, and they were working at an impact crater that was about 20 million years old in the Canadian high Arctic on an island called Devon Island. And um, they were looking for somebody to study the lakes and ponds in the area, as well as this ancient lake that had formed after the impact had happened. And you were like, I'm right here. I'm, I'm, I was, yeah, I was like, two hands, can I do that? Yes, me, pick me. And so I was just starting my PhD, um, went into this environment. I'd always been like a you know space nerd. I love everything about exploration. And then to be immersed into this, I'm originally from Canada, um, and just the opportunity that that provided and the um, amazing people that I met, uh, I eventually from that, you know, springboarded into into more planetary science and exploration and then made my way down to, to NASA. What environment on Earth have you been in most awe of? All? Like every... I can't even pick. Oh, That's really? like picking a child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is like Darlene's choice. Yeah, no. I, I just feel like you've seen places... <laughs> Okay, you've I seen places we haven't seen, and I just wonder. I you're know. someone who also who also looks at space all the time, which for me is so more inspiring. Right? There's got to be parts of Earth that you've looked at and gone, oh. I I know it sounds ridiculous, but everything. Yeah. Wow. Everything. I mean, I just um, you know, I was just in Tasmania for a few days before I came here, and we were in just outside of St. Helens, and there's an area, some of the forest up there. Of course, as, as you guys know, it's been untouched, you know, since the last prior to the last glaciation, and. It's remarkable. The ferns, the smells, um, you know, down to the, the liverworts that I uh, was being shown. They're absolutely remarkable. And I've seen sunrises and sunsets in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you know, uh, standing on the edge of a volcano. Um, I've seen the sun never set in the Arctic or the Antarctic. They're all remarkable. Yeah. And it just gives you this... When, I'm very busy usually when I'm in these environments. You're not sleeping for, you know, too long because you're just busy. Um, but you're imbued with this sense of awe every time. And whenever I get a chance to just stand by myself and kind of take it in, it really, um, it never grows old. What, what's on the horizon or event horizon for you in terms of space ex- exploration that excites you? 2024. So that's a new deadline that's been put out there. You know, we're hoping the funding comes through to send um, people back to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be wonderful. It's nice to have a deadline, right? Mm. Like humans yeah. like to procrastinate. So it's always good to have a deadline. Um, so we're we're really excited about that. I'm excited about Mars. You know, that for me has been the vision. Um, my job is basically filled with delayed gratification. So, <laughs> you know, we're doing the best we can right now with the work that we're, we're putting out there. Um, and then I'm hopeful that it will be impactful and meaningful in the 2030s as we start to see longer stay missions on the moon, human, human and robotic missions on the moon. Moon, as well as um, launching our, our first humans off to Mars. So I think we're 
you know, I can't believe it that I'm alive at this moment. At this, this, it, there's a feeling of renaissance. There's yeah. a feeling of, of finally, we're going to propel our way through this um, sort of log jam that we've been in for a little while and get ourselves into a position where we can see humans go beyond low Earth orbit, back to the moon, and on to Mars. And with with NASA working, uh, what's your attitude to to the private firms that are going into space? Great. Is it collegiate? Absolutely, it really is. Um, we spend a lot of time working with colleagues from all sorts of different private industry, um, talking in a very collegial manner. I think sometimes it's easier to, to in, you know, especially uh, perhaps in the media, it's sometimes easy to, to polarize issues and to look at it as, oh, you know, there's NASA versus everybody else, or there's SpaceX versus every, it's, it's everybody's got to work together. It really is comes back to that that theme of team um, and that you've got to reach across. And you know, there are lots of complexities involved, but um, this whole idea of getting humans back to the moon and onto Mars, it's not easy. Mm. We have to not only allow the humans to survive, but ideally to thrive. And to get to that, to that, to that point is going to take a lot of, of effort. And we're going to have to reach across um, our boundaries, our borders, and so forth to innovate. Um, and that's, so to me, that, that's the most exciting aspect of this moment in time. You're in Australia for National Science Week and they're running you ragged. Uh, <laughs> you're at an event tonight, you're at Parliament House tomorrow, right. uh, you're off, You're going to Mornington, Gippsland. Yeah. You're all over the Lucky place. Lucky me. Yeah. 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 Is, are, you gonna, are you taking it in professionally? or? Are you... Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I love the questions you guys are putting in front of me. It's really a wonderful opportunity. As I mentioned earlier, I'm from Canada and um, they, you know, and then I went to the US and... Um, it's it's been wonderful just being able to uh, kind of integrate with a lot of different people from around the world and myself, you know, coming to the U.S. from Canada, their different perspectives and so forth. You know, I hope um, maybe in some small way somebody will be inspired to reach across and, and perhaps come to NASA or, you know, say let's collaborate or something like that. And, and that, could, that person could be two years old or, you know, I don't know. Mm. But, um, yeah, so so that's why I'm excited to do this. It's, uh, it's a joy. So thanks. Mm. Dr. Darlene Lim is uh, in Australia for National Science Week and will be speaking at the launch event Science of the Extreme tonight at Melbourne Museum as well as Extrasensory at Parliament House on Saturday. Head to museumsvictoria.com.au or inspiringvictoria.org.au for more details. And uh, Dr. Lim, thank you so much for My coming My pleasure. In. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.